comes to the factor-based or the, the smart beta stuff, dividends, momentum, quality, value, these sort of things, they change a lot more frequently. And so one needs to keep a close eye on those and make sure that they don't put you in a position in your overall portfolio that you were actually not comfortable with or that you didn't think that you were exposed to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm talking about niche ETFs. So it seems like ESG ETFs are like the new babies um, in the stock market. So for those that might not know, um, ESG stands for environmental, social and governance. Um, And it seems like it is one of the non-financial factors that investors are now using um, to take into consideration when picking investment um, funds or stocks. So, Nerina, what's your take on it? Um, Do you think ESGs are here to stay? Is it greenwashing or is it just really pure interest in human rights and environmental health? Mm, mm. Also, great question, Colette. So, and, and you're absolutely right. ESG, environmental, social governance factors, certainly something that we've seen as a much stronger um, basis for investment decision making. And I think rightly so. You know, we cannot make our investment decisions in a vacuum and not appreciate the impact that the investments and the allocation of capital has in the broader economy and in the broader society. So I am a huge believer in in socially responsible investments, in Mm. in ESG investments and so on. The problem comes in how that investment premise translates into investment opportunities. So let's think in terms of two types here. So one of the most common types, and that is where we see most of what we've got in our market at the moment. So certainly the ESG ETFs that we have at the moment, the ones by Satrix and by Signia, they offer a a, a format that I would refer to as enhanced indexation. So what they really do is they start with a basic index whether it's the MSCI World or the MSCI Emerging Market or the S&P Global, whatever, Global 1200, that's the basic index. And then what they do is relative to that basic index, they look at companies that have above average ESG scores. So companies that, that um, you know, are, are environmentally very conscious, that follow good social um, practices, that have got good governance. So they would score high on ESG metrics. And so they give them an above benchmark weight, a slightly higher weight than the benchmark weight would be. And those companies that are that score poorly on these ESG metrics would then be relatively downweighted. So they would be below mm. that. So what you're really looking at here is you still invested in the MSCI world, but it yeah. is just tilted towards companies with these good ESG factors. And I think those are the um, sort of the lowest risk form of investments because what you're looking at there, and there's lots of very good evidence that following these, um, you know, sort of these, these ESG factors in your investments does give you the so-called alpha. So the, 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 the performance, the outperformance over time, not magnificent or spectacular or, or crazy or whatever, but it's a, it's a good and a sound and a prudent investment strategy. The other type of ESG investments that you get then looks at it completely from a what would be referred to as a benchmark agnostic way. In other words, I don't care what the benchmark is. I don't care what's in the S&P 500. I don't care what's in the, the top 40. I am just going mm. to invest in companies that either follow sort of, you know, get good scores on an aggregate or an overall ESG 
or maybe in one aspect of it. So you could look at things like, you know, reduced fossil fuel um, indices, not in South Africa, but there's many of these in, in global markets, for example. So it's almost like they don't care what the company does in the rest of its of its business, but as long as their carbon footprint is low or as long as they, they're reducing fossil fuels or whatever, that would be included in it. Then you get some of these companies or some of these investments that would focus specifically on social imperatives that says it's all about how we treat our our staff and it's all about yeah. social imperatives, et cetera, et cetera. But you're going to end up here with indices and with ETFs that look very different than your main vanilla benchmarks, your S&P 500, your MSCI World, mm-hmm. your top 40 or whatever. So understand mm-hmm. that there's a strong investment case for that investment premise, that idea, that investment theme, but it's going to look quite different than your normal market. So when you assess also the performance of this thing, don't look at this relative to your S&P 500 or relative to your to your top 40 or whatever, because it's something very different that you're investing in. Yeah. A good example of this for me is the new Satrix ETF that they will be listing on the 11th of August, the inclusion and diversity ETF that they're coming with. Now, there's an incredibly strong investment case for companies that focus on inclusion and diversity. It is a, it is, it's, it's just a known fact that companies that embrace diverse workforce, that support their human capital, that, that really focus on developing their human capital, et cetera, et cetera, that have diverse teams, that they are resilient, that they perform much better. But now mm. you've got to look at that investment idea or that investment premise and say, how does that translate into the index and into the ETF? And this starts getting a lot more discerning and complex and I almost want to say complicated. So I think this is an yeah. area that one really needs to understand what you're doing before you can decide whether this investment is actually what you need, what you want, what you're after and so on. So within ESG, d- differentiate between things like what I would call enhanced indexation, really just taking your your broad-based basic benchmark and just sort of tilting towards companies with good ESG scores, which arguably would not have that much of an impact on the actual underlying businesses or economies or whatever, versus some of these much more focused, socially responsible, environmentally responsible, um, you know, focused investments where allocation to that type of investments from an, in, from an institutional investment perspective arguably has got much stronger sway in terms of changing the way that, that, that investors and, and institutions allocate capital and therefore, um, you know, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit here, but, but some of, the, of, the, of, the, of those on the space might be interested in reading some of Larry Fink of BlackRock's annual letters to S&P 500 um, CEOs. Okay. So, so BlackRock is the company that, um, that, that sits behind the iShares ETFs, one of the largest ETF providers in the world. And Larry Fink is an incredibly powerful voice in terms of holding companies to account in terms of a broad range of ESG metrics. And so once a year, he writes a letter to the CEOs of the S&P 500 companies. And and it's got to the point where he's literally saying to them, listen, guys, either you shape up, either you sort of follow some of these good 
strong ESG principles in your business, or maybe in future we might not be investing in you. So maybe we won't be allocating capital to you. Now, yeah. they have the ability to actually change the way money is allocated and therefore how companies are, are, are run. Can me, little old Narina Fisser, sitting here in South Africa, investing my few rands a month or whatever in some ESG or, or thematic ETF, can I really change the world in terms of how my, my money is allocated? Ish, I'd love to think I could, but unfortunately I can't. So here I've mm. got to be much more cognizant of how does this translate into either a good investment profile for my personal investment portfolio or where might it actually detract from it so ESG I'm a big fan but I think from a personal investment perspective one needs to be quite discerning in terms of what what makes sense for you as an individual investor versus possibly what makes sense for a large institutional investor such as BlackRock yeah yeah thank you thank you Mamo or Tabang um, we have two questions that are just closely related and they speak to tech. So I'm just going to ask them together. Um, so the first one um, says, um, any other tax benefit for offshore ETFs other than capital um, gains, especially in the TFSA? And then the second one says that Nerina mentioned capital gains tax to be considered when selling your ETFs. I thought within TFSA, we don't pay any tax. Can she please explain that again? Okay, cool. Let's maybe quickly start with the last one because I think that's the easier one of the two. So absolutely no capital gains tax paid payable inside a TFSA or a tax-free investment account. The, the reference that I was making to capital gains tax would apply necessarily in a discretionary investment or an ordinary investment portfolio. So you're absolutely right in a tax-free account. Yay, no tax payable, no capital gains tax payable. So when we talk capital gains tax, this very much relates to your discretionary or your ordinary investment portfolio. So coming back to the first question then in terms of taking into consideration um, offshore investments, what are sort of the tax benefits or the, the tax implications? So typically we find that the distributions that we can receive from offshore investments are generally lower than what we get from domestic or South African investments. And this even applies to things like listed property or even dividend ETFs or certainly bond ETFs as well. So, I mean, we know that especially developed market bonds, and we've got a couple of ETFs on the JSE that give you exposure to, to, to developed market bonds, global bonds, those interest rates that they pay are virtually nothing. So, there's certainly very little income or distribution benefit and therefore very, very little benefit from a dividend withholding tax perspective for, for global um, uh, ETFs. Um, in terms of property and even dividend ETFs, yes, we do get some of those from our global investments, but the potential for capital gains in your global investments is significantly more than your potential for income. So if I specifically in my tax-free investment account is going to look at um, and I'm looking for, for income sort of into that portfolio. I might have a shorter term time horizon. I'm keen on getting um, making maximum use of interest and, and dividend withholding tax savings. I would be looking more at local ETFs. Whereas when I'm looking at capital gains, 
I certainly would have a stronger focus there over the long term, in particular on my global equity investments in particular, purely for the fact that they don't pay dividends or div- distributions or, or interest nearly to the same level that we've got in South Africa. So I hope that answers that question. Maybe also just further to the question of, you know, when I mentioned capital gains tax consideration, when you look at maybe selling out of something that you have, because this came up when we spoke about diversification, um, to decide whether you want to um, sell out of an existing ETF that you have. So um, I'm getting a little bit technical here, but bear with me. I hope that there will be some of the people on the space for whom this would be relevant. But when we look at things like our opportunity to to achieve 40,000 rand of capital gains per tax year, that is tax free. So this is a process that we refer to as tax harvesting. What we would look at there is, let's say, for example, that I've identified a particular ETF in my portfolio, which is no longer the best for me in terms of getting that exposure. So I'm just going to go back to the example of the MSCI World ETF, and now there's this global ETF that I rather want to be invested in. But if I go and sell my MSCI World, then I'm going to incur a whole lot of capital gains tax. I've already identified that what I would like to do is to sell my MSCI World and to buy the global ETF. But I don't want to do so in a, in a way that's going to cost me a whole lot of capital gains tax. So what I would do is once every tax year, so typically this is the sort of stuff that one would do sort of January, February, shortly before the tax year end, is to say, can I sell some or all of that MSCI World ETF in a way that I don't lock in more than 40,000 rand worth of capital gains? And by doing that, so I might be selling 200,000 rand worth of MSCI World ETFs on which my capital gain is 40,000 rand. When I'm not paying any capital gains tax on that, great. And I can then take that 200,000 rand and reinvest it in the global ETF because that's the one that I've identified to be more appropriate for my investment portfolio. So this is how we would over time manage this position of potential capital gains tax liabilities. Remember, I'm not talking tax-free accounts. There's no tax liabilities there. I'm talking discretionary account. And I'm just mm. saying I the reason why I'm selling the one ETF and buying another one is for reasons of there's now a better option available. It's more diversified. It's got a low total expense ratio, whatever the case might be. But I take cognizance of the fact that I must bear in mind what is my potential capital gains tax implication because I don't want to go and give this the tax man more money that I don't think he should be getting, <laughs> if I put it that way. <laughs> yeah, Mamo or Tabang? Um, hi, I'm I'm not sure if... Yes, Mamo? I was saying I'm not sure if you have questions. If you don't have, I have, still have on my side. Um, so I don't know if you want to go I first. still have a couple. Yeah, let me go first, then you can come okay. in. But, no, no. Um, so most of the ETFs we're talking about, they 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 are more like, what can I say, um, single asset classes that they, they track a certain index, either made up of companies or, say, bonds. But then there is an introduction of um, what they call multi-asset uh, class kind of funds which are called your funds, fund of funds. So this covers multiple, I would say, ETFs. For instance, the, I think the Ashburton 1200, it's, it's, it's an example of that. 
But then there are concerns in terms of the fees or the costs associated with that and also the tracking. What, how do they actually track the underlying um, ETFs? And what's, what's your view on that? Great, great, great question, Sabang. So, so, yeah, I think there's two things that we need to differentiate between here. The first one is the idea of multi-asset funds, also called balanced funds. So these are funds that invest in multiple asset classes. So this is typically where you would have one portfolio that invests in equities and in bonds and maybe some property or whatever. And we actually have very few um, options like that on the JSE in terms of ETFs. It is the biggest part of our unit trust industry. So the majority of money in unit trust actually goes into balanced funds. So these are funds that invest in these multiple asset classes. But in terms of ETFs, we've only got the two from APSA the MAPS product. So it's the multi-asset portfolios and there's a growth portfolio and a, and a, and a lower risk of protected portfolio. So that's multi-asset or balanced funds. The other concept that you mentioned here is fund of funds, which is something very different. So a fund of funds is a, is a, is a, a portfolio where the underlying investments are not all these individual companies, for example, that we'd be, we would be buying, but we're investing in a number of, a few, a handful of, of, of ETFs or of other funds. So Ashburton in their Global 1200 ETF um, a while back changed their whole underlying model to a fund of fund model. So prior to that, it's the global 1200, the S&P global 1200 index is the one that attracts. So prior to that change, they had to go into buying, they didn't buy every single one of the 1,200 companies, but they bought a big part of them and they were holding the individual securities, the individual companies in that ETF. They then applied to the FECA and went through the whole ballot process to change this to a fund of fund model where the underlying investment is now just seven funds. And the seven funds that they've got that underlies that really invests in the seven regional indices that make up the S&P Global 1200 index. So there is some significant benefits to this in terms of Cost efficiencies for starters. Remember, right at the beginning of the space, I was talking about the benefits of ETFs that you're talking here about economies of scale. So for Ashburton now, instead of having to go and buy, call it 1,200 different companies in lots of markets around the world, they only have to buy seven ETFs, seven funds, all traded sort of in one central market. So the benefits that they get from that, from a cost perspective, is significant. Yes, there is an additional layer of cost because inside each of those seven ETFs or inside each of those seven funds, there would already be some costs associated with it. But now you start trading off the cost benefit of only investing in seven funds versus the costs of having to go and buy all of those thousands of companies in and it's not just the buying it's not just the transaction cost the trading cost that is expensive it's the custody charge it's it's dealing with you know market participants and brokers in so many different markets it's crossing the exchange rate double it's a whole lot of things <laughs> like that so, so I think our thinking around funder funds typically is that, oh, yeah, 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 that's adding a layer of fees, you know, this is expensive. 
But I think we need yeah. to understand the the benefit of actually using the 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 the, the, the that economies of scale of those seven big underlying funds that are sitting there that Ashburton here in South Africa would never achieve. You know, their fund would never be big enough to get those same sort of cost benefits that iShares, for example, could get by having seven relatively large ETFs that they're already managing. And all Ashburton is doing is just buying a few of those and, and units and getting the full cost benefit of it. So, yeah. Fund of funds, you know, sort of all else being equal, it's easy to argue that it's more expensive, that there's layering of fees. My view is quite different. I think the benefits of the economies of scale that is brought to a South African investor through these sort of models, I think, is significantly higher than the, the sort of the additional costs that's associated with, with a fund of fund structure in this particular instance. All right. Nice. Sweet. Thank you. Um my next question was going to be around investing in global DTFs, but I think you have covered that. So now let's talk um, exchange rate. You know, so for most of the weekends, um, some may feel okay. I'm, I have a provident fund, I have an RA, and I'm also have exposure to local markets. So obviously, with 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 the RAs and the provident funds, we know they are regulated, and you can only have so much exposure to 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 offshore. So um, what would be what is the impact of the exchange rate on 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 say offshore offshore investments and there's often this measure around um, these ETFs gain so much in terms of dollars but then in red terms it's lower and how can we actually measure that Yes, so let's just think of the impact that the exchange rate has in terms of a um, of an ETF, a global ETF or an offshore ETF that is listed on the JC. So uh, let's just go back to our tried and trusted example of the S&P 500. So the S&P 500 is the 500 largest companies in the US. So it mm-hmm. is dollar, US dollar denominated. And so if I now invest in that as a South African investor, I'm buying it on the JSE as a South African ETF. It means that what I'm investing in really has two components of return. The one would be the return of the S&P 500 in dollar terms. And the other part of the return would be the RAND dollar exchange rate. So if the RAND dollar exchange rate, if the RAND weakens relative to the dollar, it means that that dollar price of the S&P 500 converted into rands is going to be a higher amount because the rand is actually depreciated against the dollar. So now when I look at the return of my S&P 500 ETF in rand terms on the JSE, my performance is better than the performance of the S&P 500 in dollar terms because I got that extra return, that extra benefit from the rand depreciating. But the converse is also true. When the rand appreciates, when it strengthens against the dollar, it means that that dollar price of the S&P 500 converted into rands, <coughs> sorry, is now is now a lower price in rand terms, and therefore I'm losing some of the return of that S&P 500 index because of the rand strength. So it's quite important that when we think in terms of our offshore investments that we appreciate and that we understand that there's two very distinct components of that return. The S&P 500 return in dollar terms 
is completely independent of what happens to the Rand dollar. The companies in the S&P 500 are not going to do better or worse because the RAND depreciates or appreciates or whatever. It's like two totally separate. It's like water and oil. The two ain't never going to mix. It's got nothing to do with one another. (laughs) But my performance as a South African investor buying this thing in RANDs on the JSE is going to be a combination of those two things. So sometimes we find that the S&P 500, and this is just my example, this applies to all foreign ETFs, but we find that the underlying investment in the hard currency, so whether that's dollars or pounds or euros or whatever the case might be, that that performance might actually be quite good in dollar terms, but when the RAND strengthens over a period of time, and that's certainly what we saw sort of, you know, since um, April, May, let's, let's call it over the last year or so, the RAND has strengthened substantially against the dollar. So it means that that strengthening of the RAND has taken quite a bit of the return that I would have received in RANDs. It's taken that off my, my sorry, that I would have received based on the S&P 500. It's taken a lot of that away. The converse is true. Should the RAND deep appreciate it means that I'm getting extra return on top of the S&P 500 return that I wouldn't otherwise have had. So I often try and encourage people to think of these global investments on the JSE in RAND terms as two separate investment decisions. The one investment decision is, do I want to be in that particular offshore investment? Do I want to be in the S&P 500 being US equities? Do I want to be in MSCI emerging markets being emerging market investments? Do I want to be in China? Do I want to be in global property, whatever? So first to think of that as a almost a pure investment in terms of the the, the hard currency, the dollar um, type of investment. And then over and above that, I've got to think in terms of, in terms of my RAND dollar, my RAND sort of exchange rate, do I understand that if the RAND appreciates, it's going to hurt this offshore investment of mine? Do I understand that if the RAND depreciates, I'm going to get better better returns, but those better returns are just because of the RAND? And this is a difficult thing to get our minds around when we only look at the historical performance of these investments in RAND terms, because we're looking at, a, at something that's already been mixed and we don't always understand the contribution of the underlying investment in dollar terms and the contribution of the RAND dollar um, component. So for investors that are maybe a bit more advanced on their investment journey, I really would encourage them to look at the performance of, just my example again, an S&P 500 ETF on the JSE breaking that down into two components and say, what did the S&P 500 do in dollar terms and what did the RAND dollar do to get a better sense of what were the contributions to return of each of those things. Just a final point in, in, in terms of that. Just remember that when it comes to capital gains tax, in terms, and again, we're outside of the tax-free investment accounts now, but in terms of capital gains tax, SARS will look at your performance of that investment in RAND terms. In other words, if the RAND depreciates and you get additional return because of the RAND depreciating against the dollar, you will effectively be liable for capital gains tax on that currency depreciation as well. And conversely, 
if the rand strengthens, it gives you it gives you sort of some capital losses potentially. Oh, let's hope not. But yes, the, you could have a reduction in your capital gains because of the rand strengthening. So there is also an implication for your capital gains tax on the basis of what the currency does. So always important to keep that in mind as well. Yes, mm. sweet, sweet, Narina. Yeah, I think. Yeah, with most most analysts will always, you know, um, tell you that it's better to to invest offshore, you know. And I think recently we've seen with the whole China scandal that, you know, I think sometimes just keeping your money local is the way to go. All right, so now. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, if I could just on on that because you're so right, you know. I think it's um, <laughs> as South Africans, cheapest. I sometimes think we're our, we're our own worst enemies, and I think we we need to be very clear about why we invest offshore. You should yeah. never invest offshore because you're looking for additional returns to come from the currency depreciating. Listen, for all of us here in South Africa, if the rand depreciates, h it's not good for us, okay? Let's just accept that, that you might get better returns from your investments offshore, but everything else is actually not great for us. So the reason why you would invest offshore is much more a focus on that underlying dollar performance or pound performance or euro performance. It is about diversification. It is about getting exposure to investments that are different than what we can have in South Africa. It is about different industries, different sectors, different economic cycles. So focus on the diversification benefits of investing offshore. Don't expect the RAND to weaken to bail you out of what is a bad investment in terms of that. And, and yeah, I think China is a, is a great example through all of this. You know, it's, it's really sort of tested, I think, the resolve of people who've invested in China. I'm a very, very strong proponent of investment, investment in China for, for portfolios and investors where it makes sense. But I've always said it is a long-term investment. So coming back to what we discussed earlier on in the space, this is about long term. Expect you know, understand that this thing can lose a lot of money in the short term. But I'm in this for the long haul because I understand that within the next five to ten years, China is going to become the largest economy in the world. Can I afford not to be invested in the largest economy in the world? I'm sitting in a country and an economy that is less than one percent of the global economy. Yes, the U.S. looks spectacular at the moment, and the U.S. has done really well. And for a long time, we will necessarily need to stay invested in the U.S. as well. But can I afford to ignore China if in the next five to ten years that's going to be the largest economy in the world? And from that perspective, my argument for myself says no. I can't not be invested in this. Yes, it's going to be volatile in the short term. Yes, there's going to be lots of things that's going to cause me some anxiety in the short term. But, but you know, um, here's another analogy. I look at my investment journey much like being on quite a choppy ocean. I don't know if any of you have been on a boat on the open waters on the ocean, but it can get quite hairy. And when you start feeling that in your stomach and it's like, oh, oh I'm not going to make this. This is really bad. <laughs> What do you need to do? What is the important thing? What is the advice that's given to you when you're on a boat in the open water and you feel very nauseous because of all this, this turbulence? Is to get outside. Sure. Don't sit downstairs. You've got to get outside, get that fresh air and, you know, sort of on your face. But very importantly, look to the horizon. Look towards the horizon because there 
things are smooth and flat. When you look down and you look at the choppiness of the water immediately below you, jeepers, then you just spoil your guts. Then you feed the fish because that's when you feel exactly as choppy as that water below you. But when your investment horizon is long-term, you look there towards the horizon where the water is calm and where the water is, where there's a smooth horizon. You say, that's what I'm focusing on. I'm going to ignore the choppiness that's below me and focus Mm. on my long-term investment horizon. Yeah, beautiful. All right. Thank you. But now let's, let's, let's compare and yeah, well, I'll I'll do one last question before we, we take some questions from the timeline. And also maybe we can ask some listeners to join as a speaker if they have any questions. So now let's compare unit trust versus ETFs. So with ETFs, we do what we call passive investing, right? Um, we track indices. And these have been proven to, to outperform unit trusts, which are often actively managed. Although unit trusts, they are more diversified. They, they, you don't only invest in shares. You have other asset classes. You have bonds, you have cash, you have property. Besides fees, what, what are the main contributing factors to, to, to ETFs outperforming unit trusts? Besides the big issue around fees, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tabang, I'm so glad that you're asking the question like this because I think when we talk about ETFs versus unit trusts, I think there's a very important basic understanding that we need to get to. ETFs versus unit trusts is not about... Um, Passively or index, uh, passive managed style or index tracking style versus actively managed tracking um, sort of investment style. We tend to think that unit trusts necessarily mean actively managed. But of course, we get unit trusts that also track indices. Similarly, we are in getting an increasing number of exchange traded products that are not only index tracking they are also actively managed. We don't have that many of them on the JSE yet, but they but there's more of them coming in, especially in the exchange-traded note space. And we can talk about ETNs in a bit just now as well. But especially in the exchange-traded note space, there's an increasing number of, of products that don't track indices. So the major difference between ETFs and unit trusts really is about where do you buy them? Remember, we started out by saying exchange traded fund. Exchange traded means I buy it on the exchange. I buy it on the stock exchange. That's my marketplace. That's my shop where I go and buy my ETFs or my exchange traded products. Unit trusts are what we would refer to as OTC products, over the counter. I'm buying them directly from the unit trust company. I might buy them via a list platform or some sort of investment platform, but I'm basically dealing directly with the unit trust company. So that's the most important difference between ETFs and unit trusts. And when we then look, and before we even look at the cost savings associated with the underlying investment styles of index tracking versus active, and there's significant cost savings associated with that, and we're all quite familiar with that maybe, but before we even look at that, the main reason for um, for differences in costs between exchange traded and OTC or, or unlisted sort of unit trusts relates mm-hmm. to the fact that, um, and again, I'm going to get quite technical here, but I, I appreciate that I think we might have some people on the space that will fully understand and get this. Yeah. A unit trust 
can only operate in what we refer to as the primary market. In other words, if I have an 100 rand to invest in a unit trust, and Sabang, you want to sell 100 rand of that same unit trust, the unit trust company have got to go into the underlying market, take my 100 rand and go and buy those, those companies or buy those underlying assets to make up my 100 rand. And they've got to take your 100 rand worth of unit trust and sell the underlying to give you your money. They're not allowed to take my 100 rand and give it to you. But in the ETF space, in an exchange-traded fund space, it primarily operates in what we refer to as the secondary market. The secondary market means that there is just an exchange of existing units between two investors. So I want to buy 100 rand of an ETF. You, Tabang, want to sell 100 rand of an ETF. The only thing that needs to happen is those units get exchanged on the exchange. There's no underlying market action. So nobody needs to go into the underlying market and go and buy and sell shares. So do you understand that there's double the amount of trading that is avoided in the ETF space compared to what needs to happen in the unit trust space? The unit trust is not allowed to exchange the units of one of the buyer with the seller because they don't have an exchange license. They're not a recognized exchange. So unit trusts are great, great investment vehicles, but they date from 1965. By the way, that's when I was born. Unit trusts are exactly <laughs> as old as I am. <laughs> ETFs. ETFs are what I refer to as unit trusts for the 21st century. It's that same safe regulatory structure, but it's saying, well, you know what? Now we're actually allowed and authorized and regulated to exchange the units from a buyer with a seller. And these massive cost savings in terms of that. So I'm not even going to go into the cost differentials of index tracking versus actively managed, because I think that's where a lot of people focus on. But it's really in this primary market versus secondary market where some big savings are. And one of the best ways to go and evaluate that is go and look at the same issuer company, the same index, and look at the performance of the unit trust version of that index tracking product and the ETF version of that index tracking product. And I hate, to, I'm not going to pick on Satrix here, but it's just a very good example <laughs> and there are many examples, fortunately, like that. But go and look at the Satrix 40 ETF and the Satrix 40 index uh, unit trust because there's a Satrix 40 unit trust as well. Yeah, and don't compare the performance of those. Yeah, I'm not even talking balance fund. I'm talking exactly the same underlying. So it's exactly the same top 40 index tracking fund. Go and compare the performance over a three-year, five-year period of the ETF with that of the index fund. So it's the same issuer. It's the same underlying index. And you will find that the ETF outperforms the unit trust for the simple reason that the ETF does not need to go into the underlying market all the time and incur that underlying transaction cost. Um, I, I, I hate picking on Satrix. I definitely don't want to pick on Satrix. But there are lots of examples like that. Signia has got several unit trusts and ETFs that track exactly the same index. So there's many examples that you can look at in terms of this. But it's important to understand that the main difference between an ETF and a unit trust is not about index tracking versus actively managed. It's about where you buy it. It's exchange traded versus OTC, over-the-counter buying directly from the, from the company. And, and, and if we start to understand the impact that that has, 
will start to understand why ETFs as an investment instrument really is this powerful instrument for the 21st century. It is the, it's the 21st century version of unit trusts, which is, you know, this is, this is like the next generation in cars. It's like, it's, you know, it's like the, oh, jeepers, now I'm really showing my age if I say this is like VHS versus Betamax. Most of you are probably going to say, what is this old Tony talking about? You know, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. I'm the one But you get it. It is really about the evolution of how to do things more efficiently. Yes, we've got a lot of focus on index tracking versus actively managed, and that's valid. But that Mm -hmm. is by no stretch of the imagination the only um, sort of important uh, basis or contribution for the benefits of ETFs versus unit trusts. Wow. All right. Beautiful. Um, Um, Yeah, Kelet, so I think we can take a couple of questions from the timeline. Mamu and then 